2: All but like a good Ginsu knife commercial, he slices, he dices, and so much more. (laughs) Good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you with us. It's a Tuesday, and just at 5 after the hour, 5 p.m. here on the West Coast, welcome once again to another edition of Lifeline. We are, of course, here every Monday through Friday addressing topics that impact your life, your world, and we're going to do more of the same today. Keep you on top of traffic throughout our conversation this evening, then I run till 7 o'clock. Every 15 minutes, we'll check in with the KFAX Traffic Center. So that'll be some good stuff for you. And a pretty exciting show lined up today. A little bit of a a respite from all of the political talk. I think we could all use a little bit of a break. And as we head into a couple of days of very special programming on Wednesday and Thursday, which I'll tell you a little bit about later on in tonight's program, we're going to escape for a moment to a different place, a different time in many respects, some might argue, a different world. To help set the scene and take us back 102 years, let's give a listen to an American moment with our friend Bill Curtis.
1: It was called the war to end all wars, but instead it only served as a prelude of worse things to come. It was the world's first universal war with the nations of the United States, United Kingdom, France, Greece, Italy, Russia, and 19 other countries declaring war on Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, Germany, the Ottoman Empire, and the other European-based nations. This war would prove to be a long, bloody, and costly conflict. For the first time, chemical weapons were used in organized warfare. In 1915, the Germans unleashed 150 tons of chlorine gas at Ypres, Belgium. Then, two years later, used mustard gas against the Russians at Riga. World War I also gave birth to a new form of battle called trench warfare. Opposing armies would build elaborate trenches opposite one another, protected by barbed wire. The area between the opposing armies became known as no man's land attacks, even if successful, often sustained severe casualties for both sides. So when it finally came to an end, on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, their long nightmare had finally come to an end, leaving an estimated 8.5 million people dead and some 21 million wounded. Although the face of the civilized world had forever changed, 21 short years later, history would again repeat itself.
0: Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me, every son of liberty. Hurry right away, no delay, go today. Make your daddy glad to have had such a nap. Tell your sweetheart not to find So be proud, her boys in line. Over there, over there, over there. Over there. Send the word, send the word, over there. That the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming. The drums, drums, coming drum, everywhere, everywhere. So prepare. We won't come back
2: to the over there. Well, of course, tomorrow, November the 11th, will mark the 102nd anniversary since the end of World War I. The war to end all wars, but in fact, as we know, sadly, it certainly didn't. It's an amazing period in not just European but American history. And our guest tonight has been a modern day searcher. In many respects, an adventurer who has helped to uncover some historical aspects of the First World War that I think you will find compelling as they are fascinating. No, certainly stranger to the KFAX audience, we have spoken on many occasions since the beginning of the COVID outbreak to Dr. Jeff Guskey, who, of course, is an emergency room physician in Dallas, Texas. But today we spend some time talking about another very important passion of his, his hobby that is part of really documenting this fascinating part of the world during a very fascinating part of 20th century history. And Dr. Gusky, as always, great to have you on the program.
3: It's an honor to be with you, Craig. Thank you for inviting me back.
2: As we begin to talk about your work, and we're going to dive into this today uh, pretty deeply, but I, I want to begin first with um, what's first pegged on or urged on your interest in going underground into literally miles of, of tunnels that exist Below, in many cases, simply farmland in parts of Belgium and, and uh, France, the location of where World War II battles most notably took place, to, to go in there and document really what had been not just the lives, but in sometimes the legacy. Of many of these soldiers, both Allied as well as uh, uh, German soldiers. Uh, Was this for you, diving into uh, photography, maybe a little bit of a a change-up, a change of pace from your work uh, as a physician both in in orthodontics and and now currently as an emergency room physician?
3: No, actually it was um, uh, directly related to what I do in the ER um, to help people see danger and avoid uh, crises and World War I is a way to see ourselves. They were modern people, and modern life has a way of dehumanizing us. And through them, we can see ourselves. And it turns out that this hidden world of World War I, which was essentially unknown until uh, National Geographic broke uh, the story of my photographs and discoveries in uh, 2014, uh, is Is a direct human connection between then and now and it turns out that so much of of what we're facing today is this blindness to danger that's right in front of our eyes because of the way we become dehumanized so through them we can see ourselves
2: your photographs, as we indicate, have been seen in National Geographic magazine commemorating the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. You've had an exhibit at the Smithsonian. Um, There's also uh, some books that you have published, most notably The Hidden World of World War I. And what fascinates me about this, and you know, some listeners perhaps have seen some of the series uh, of underground cities. We talk about underground worlds beneath the feet of New Yorkers or those that live in Seattle even in the catacombs of Rome. And in many respects, you have helped to uncover literally underground cities of World War I, which at least from my reading and understanding historically, we've always heard about the trenches of the battlefields of World War I. I had no realization until I first encountered your work that there are literally complete cities underground. Tell us more about that.
3: They are modern cities beneath the trenches. They were ancient rock quarries from centuries before World War One, from which the stone for castles and cathedrals and fortresses and homes was mined. And then comes World War One, and, and in the blink of an eye, you have this 450-mile line that goes from the Atlantic Ocean in Belgium all the way to the Swiss border in France. And the this was the first modern mass destruction where the weapons were so powerful that the surface of the earth became completely uninhabitable, dehumanized, and in fact, if you were standing in proximity to where one of these shells would hit, you didn 't just die, you would disappear. There was a term called pink mist, which was all that was left of a human being after uh, a bomb struck and. And so it, it was It was totally dehumanizing. The only place that they could find safety was to go underground where the shells could not reach them. So what do they do when they destroy modern civilization with high technology? Um, there's this impulse in all of us to recover our humanness when we become dehumanized. And they go underground with all the same technologies that made cities possible, rail, telecommunications, electric lights, uh, hospitals, food systems, theaters, chapels, command and control, and living quarters for thousands and thousands of people. One of the places I photographed is over 25 miles underground in one place. Imagine a subway station that just goes on and on and on. I'm about 6'4", and I can walk in these places and, and hardly ever have to crunch down you know um they they're vast they they just boggle the mind how big they are and they were totally underground and so what happens is that that these these soldiers on both sides recreate a human world and you see the their souls on the walls of these underground cities notes to loved ones you know messages to the future jokes sports scores Beautiful, beautiful works of art, ranging from classic to contemporary, Picasso to like to folk art. It's unbelievable, and it's still there, frozen in time, as if a hundred years today.
2: And I think that's what is particularly fascinating about this is the degree to which this is so well preserved. In looking through the pages of your book, "The Hidden World of." World War I, I was struck by the notion that there are similarities to more modern tunnels in Vietnam, for example, in the Coochie Tunnels of South Vietnam, that are literally complete underground cities where you have kitchens and sleeping quarters and areas for recreation. And uh, you just about name it, anything that you would experience in normal civilian life above ground, they largely, as you suggest, Dr. Gusky, recreated for military life, Below ground, but what's so fascinating is how this has managed to survive all of these years and be left in such great condition. You you must have at moments uh, felt like some of the early explorers of the pyramids of Giza, where you're going in and uncovering, in this case, a century worth of history and the, in some cases, the final memories left by those soldiers who fought there and in many cases died there.
3: That's right. You, you're, it's a very special privilege to be in complete darkness and you, you just have your headlight shining on the wall. And, and before you is the writings of another human being who lived 100 years ago. And you can touch it. You can feel it. You can, you can imagine their emotions when they were writing this, not knowing if they would be alive the next day. And it's very emotional. Some of these places were very, very close to the most horrific parts of the war. And one I think of is on the Somme, uh, near um, some of the, the most intense violence of World War I. And uh, most of the young men that, that wrote their names probably died soon after and as it turns out you know you the more you peel back the layers on these stories the more fascinating things you find turns out that um JRR Tolkien was a World War 1 soldier he was not yet a writer but he was a junior officer in the British army and he was in this place and you find it in his diary he was there at various times um over a course of 10, 11 days, uh, where they would come back maybe a mile you know, uh, from the front line to this uh, underground shelter. And this was probably the first time he imagined Middle Earth because he was there. He was writing about something he experienced in World War I.
2: With us today is physician and National Geographic photographer, Dr. Jeff Gusky. We are talking about his experiences documenting the underground world of World War I. We'll get back to more of our conversation here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Just excited, then he shouted to them there.
2: Welcome back to The Conversation here on this special edition of Lifeline, marking the 102nd anniversary of the end of World War I. And my, my, how recording technology has improved in 102 years. There is a John McCormick with It's a Long Way to Tipperary from 1917. My goodness. You know, it's interesting when you look at the uh, bunkers, for example, of World War Two. Uh, Wolf's Lair in East Poland or the Fuhrer Bunker in Berlin, which I think today is uh, largely a parking lot. Uh, remarkably, for locations that were so well built, they didn't survive just 75 years after the first uh, Second World War. And yet, remarkably, so many of these tunnels in this underground world that we're discussing today with our guest, emergency room physician and celebrated photographer, Dr. Jeff Guskey, who, of course, is the author of The Hidden World of World War I. Amazing photography that really gives us a glimpse into not just another time, but another world. And I think so remarkably, as you have toured through, and I will point listeners as well, Dr. Guskey, to a number of YouTube videos uh, that feature your work, where so much of what is down there, even a century later, is unmarred by looters and souvenir seekers. Uh, has this yet been, uh, to your knowledge, designated as a UNESCO World Heritage uh, Site?
3: There's been discussion about it, but uh, it, it hasn't happened. The politics of that are a little complicated. But um, I I think that the the question you're asking is a very salient, very important question, and it's a mindset that we're not accustomed to in the United that you know, if we we our history is is hundred years old, not like Europe where it's a thousand years old or more, and and so when we find something historic, it's you know it's made into uh, an icon and, and protected and celebrated, and, and it, we have so so few of them in, in France. It you know there are many many historic relics, and it turns out that the areas where these underground cities exist is also an area of centuries of war where outsiders have come in and invaded. And there's a, a culture of almost secrecy and not wanting the outside world to come in. So almost all of these places are beneath private farms out in the countryside, kind of in the middle of nowhere, little tiny villages. And, and so um, I was very fortunate through a series of uh, personal introductions and building relationships over time to gain access to the world. That's how it happened. Otherwise, they don't don't want people to know about it. They don't want outsiders to come in. And it turns out the reason why the geology of the area is so well-preserved is that in this part of France, the water table is such that it remains very dry. It's kind of a stable... Uh, sandstone type geology underground. If you go northwestern front, they had tunnels and they had, you know, some underground areas, but the water table, uh, is, and all that is gone. And, and so, um, that's why we still have these places.
2: And these places, in many respects, as you've documented inside the pages of the hidden world of World War I, really serve, as I suggest, of a time capsule of sorts, not just of military equipment and personal effects, but many of the, the carvings into the rock that have lasted a century now, um, kind of, as I suggested in my opening remarks, harken uh, us back to the drawings of the pyramids of Giza, in that they tell a very profound story of the lives... Maybe the dashed hopes and dreams of many of the soldiers who served there lived there, and in a sad uh, vast majority died there
3: exactly when the story is that it, it's really what connects us to them in that our humanness doesn't change human nature is the same, and when when the the world falls apart, all that matters is is each other and the memories and the love that we have. Um, when you look at both sides, whether it's German or the Allies, the most common carving of art that I would find would be hearts. Mm. In the midst of a war, hearts. They, they were concerned about love and, and about, about uh, soul and about God and about worship and about the inner life, um, you, you also find other examples of um, of the inner life in places where the front line would switch from one army to the other. And that would happen sometimes where for a year or so, an underground site would be in the hands of the Germans, and then it would switch to the French or the Americans or the Italians, and then it would switch back to the Germans, and you almost always see a respect by one army of the other army's mementos and inscriptions. You don't see destruction. You see reverence. Isn't that something?
2: It's fascinating. And, you know, there's another aspect to this that really is is pulling at my attention because, you know, when we, we speak typically of the battles of, of any major war, be it the Civil War here in American soil, World War II, throughout both the European and um, Asian theater— and Pacific Theater, rather, as well as that of World War One, we normally hear about it, Dr. Gusky, in terms of battlefield statistics, how many served, how many died, how many bombs were dropped, things of this sort. This not only documents man 's inhumanity toward man but below ground in these carvings, it documents the human side of World War One, and not just. Again, the the raw numbers, but the story of the people, the men, the boys, in many cases, they were as young as 17, 18 years old, who served there and died there. And what you're really uncovering and sharing inside the pages of the hidden world of World War I is a glimpse into who they were, not as battlefield statistics, but rather who they were as fellow human beings. I find it fascinating.
3: Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, something else that's along the lines of what you just said—they also reveal who they were as Americans. Hmm. We, you know, we're we're faced with this time of of uh, confusion about what it means to be an American. You know, do we love America? Do we hate America? Are we proud of it, or 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 do we want to take it apart? Here, these young men were often first-generation immigrants from uh, Europe, from Ireland, from Germany, from France, from Italy, you know, from Scotland, from, you know, they were of all religions, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish. They were Hispanic. They were black. They were white. They were, you know, um, and they, but they were all Americans. And here they were um, back in Europe from whence they come fighting for their country. And when you're down there, I wish that all, I wish I could take you there, Craig. I know how much you love history and, you know, we'd crawl down the hole into the ground together and, and you turn on your light and boom, you wouldn't believe your eyes, what you would see. Um, and, uh, when your audience, I wish we could all be there together right now. And what you would feel is a sense of clarity about America, a love of country a love of freedom, a longing for place. You know, Americans have this sense of place, you know, of home. And many of these, uh, these young men were from farms. They never had traveled beyond maybe 15 miles from, from their farm into town, back and forth, and now they're, you know, all the way across the Atlantic fighting in a foreign country. And, and they, you feel that love of country. And there's one inscription that comes to mind, it's so moving it's the profile of a face maybe it's actually the size of a human head and in the in the brain is is an american flag so he's he's um thinking about america about home and under the eye is a tear he's missing home and and so and you you see chapels on the wall you know uh, pictures of chapels and churches and And of Christmas and of boats and of the things that they loved, you know, about America, about home, what they valued. And, of course, their girlfriends and their wives and their families. You know, you just, it's beautiful.
2: And it's fascinating because, as you point out, Dunagowski, in many cases, these young men that served there—if not they themselves—in a year earlier period had escaped the turmoil of Europe, only to return uh, to help bring about peace to some of that turmoil. Or certainly, perhaps their their uh, their parents or grandparents had escaped Europe to come to the United States, start a new life, only to return. But demonstrative, and I like the point that you make with regard to helping us to understand and recapture a sense of American um, identity, that this is the first significant of many example of American sacrifice for the cause of freedom, and not just for ourselves, but in the cause of freedom for others, that, that sense of being able to think beyond ourselves and recognize the good and the value of other human beings, whether or not they carry the, 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 the moniker uh, citizen of the United States. You know, Craig,
3: I love being on your show. I love talking with you because of your insights. You, you nailed it. It was about it was something outside of ourselves. That's what it means to be an American. It's a, it's a state of giving that, that is not about, about um, uh, ethnic origin or religion or race. It, it's about being an American. There's an unselfishness. And may I give you an example of, of a, a very moving discovery um, that uh, w- was the subject of a Smithsonian Channel documentary um, uh, called Americans Underground, Secret City of World War One," And it had to do with Native Americans. Would you like to hear? yeah, Yes, question? please. Go ahead. So so this uh in the course of these um, explorations, which you know, I was practically living in France about half the time for about four or five years. You know, I would fly over, photograph for several weeks, come back, you know, pay the bills, you know, working in the ER, and back and forth, crossing the Atlantic, and uh, um, and and so I'm, I discovered um, what turned out to be the only remaining trace. Of Native Americans. Now, why is that really unique? Because in 1918, Native Americans were not citizens of the United States. They wouldn't become citizens until 1924. And so, the the traces that we found were of soldiers from Maine, the 103rd uh, of the 26th Division, which is a, a group of volunteers, and amongst them were. Um, volunteers from the Passamaquoddy Indian tribe, which is on the Atlantic coast, up very, very close to Maine, right on the ocean. One of them was the son of the tribal chief destined to lead his people. And they left very unique carvings. Um, Their culture was an ancient culture, and, and so you didn't see any names um, of these Native Americans, but we knew they were there from the rosters, and so one of my uh, team, who is a wonderful um, National Guard officer and a historian uh, named Doctor or Captain Jonathan Bratton, went to the tribal headquarters, showed the tribal historian this the photographs of the carvings, and when this man saw these pictures, it was almost like. He went into a trance. I mean, it was almost, you could see it in his face. There was silence. And what these revealed were symbols of, uh, that were ancient tribal symbols dating back thousands of years. So they didn't leave their names. They left the symbols uh, that identified them as a people of their tribe, and they were peace and love in the Indian language. And that they're there right now underground beneath a farm field, working farm in France, in complete darkness. Those soldiers fought like hell. They they gave half of them died. And and this is the kind of irony that we discover in World War One. The son of the tribal chief would live until the very last the last full day of the war in a horrific battle and he would lose his life, and his family would receive letters coming from him that he had written, and it wasn't, so they were getting letters that it turns out were after he died when they arrived, and then they would find out that they lost their precious son. So they were so proud to fight for a country they loved, even though they were not citizens. They did not get medals because they weren't citizens. And then when we made this discovery, fortunately, um, the state of Maine, and this was just several years ago, did a ceremony to posthumously award these heroes medals. And it was, it was so cool because you see uh, the, you know, all these American roles, police officers, firemen, you know, men, women, different you know, Air Force, Army, Coast Guard, Navy, you know, they were so patriotic wearing their uniforms. But they're also wearing their, their headdresses and their tribal clothing, and they're doing a smoke ceremony and a dance, consecrating the memory of their loved ones who, who love this country. That's the kind of thing that you discover with this story.
2: We're visiting today with Dr. Jeff Gusky, physician and national geogra- ge- <coughs> <pardon> me <coughs> national geography photographer. We're discussing his book, The Hidden World of World War One," And the book, by the way, is available by going to Jeff <laughs> Gusky's website, Jeff Guskey, G-U-S-K-Y, JeffGuskey.com. We'll take a brief time out. We'll continue our conversation as Lifeline continues.
0: I heard a mother murmur through her tears. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I brought him up to be my pride and joy. Who dared to place a musket on his shoulder To shoot some other mother's darling boy. Let stations aberrate their future trouble. It's time to raise a thorn and run away. There'd be no war today if mothers all would say I I didn't raise my my boy to
2: be as as bold Welcome back to the conversation, and as we mark the 102nd anniversary of the end of the First World War tomorrow on Veterans Day, or for slightly older Americans, we recall it as Armistice Day, we're visiting with celebrated photographer and emergency room physician, Dr. Jeff Gusky. He, of course, is the author of the book, The Hidden World of World War One," and that's available, by the way, through his website, jeffgusky.com. That's Jeff. Gusky.com. I'd also encourage you to uh, Google his name um, on uh, YouTube. Do a search rather through YouTube. You'll find a number of fascinating videos where you get a a little bit of uh, the beginnings of the understanding of exactly how special this region that literally lies below the battlefields and today farmland of places like France and Belgium and the rich history that has preserved there and I I would wonder Dr Gusky, if if your sense when you first ventured in to the first underground series of tunnels and they're they're quite cavernous as you point out they're they're really more like complete cities and and, and large in every respect when you began to see not just the artifacts of war the military equipment, the personal effects of the men that had served there, but then all of these intricate, detailed carvings that really tell their story. Did did you get a sense of feeling as if you were on sacred ground? I I certainly had that That feeling when I traveled to to Rome for the first time and visited the catacombs, and you see uh, the representation of the literally thousands of lives there, and you suddenly feel that you're at a spot that is very special, not only historically, um, but also very special because of the lives that were lost there, like standing on sacred ground.
3: Yes, that that is accurate. There's a a spirituality, there's a feeling, you you sense something in the air, you can't put your finger on it. Others say the same thing. And, And it's almost as if these voices of 100 years ago are speaking to us across time, thing don't make the mistakes that we did don't walk into a meat grinder like we did because of the dehumanization caused by modern life and so that's what uh that was exactly the 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 experience from the very first underground city that i found i'll i'll never forget the moment where I knew I had to do this project I, we uh, this this uh, young man who's become a very good friend, uh, Dr. Frank, Frank Viltart, um, uh, a uh, Ph.D. historian who works with the French government, took me out in the countryside. We walk up this hillside through dense brush, up and over a mound, and voila! In this case, it wasn't. You didn't have to crawl down into a hole. It was just an opening that was. Uh, cut laterally into a, a hillside, and my camera was on the tripod. I had a telephoto lens, and there was something that I couldn't see with the naked eye—at least not at first—and and I'll never forget it. It, it this beautiful classical uh, Greek profile of a woman's face that could easily be in a museum, and uh, it's just been sitting there for for a hundred years. It's there right now, I'm sure, and no one knows it's there. And you feel this direct human connection uh between the person who carved that. And uh I thought of something else since you um mentioned, you know, the importance of tomorrow as a commemoration of the end of the war. There's something that almost no one knows about. And I'd like to plant a seed very positive seed about how World War I touches today um, for your your audience as, they, uh, as tomorrow arrives and they're thinking about what it means. So it turns out that on the last day, the last hour, the last minute of World War I, the last Americans fighting were a unit the Germans called the Black Devils the only all-African-American unit in the entire U.S. military with all-black officers and all-black soldiers, led by the highest-ranking black officer in the U.S. military, whose grandfather was a personal friend of Abraham Lincoln and a pallbearer at his funeral. Wow. I kid you not. So when everyone else laid down their weapons, these soldiers were an American unit, Wearing American uniforms uh, with American officers, but under the French overarching command, and the French were very uh, unhappy with the intense racism that existed at that time, nothing like today, you know it was really bad back then in the u s military and uh, and so they they allowed this unit that was fierce when everyone else laid down their weapons to continue their objective, which was. To go after a fleeing German convoy, and they chased them all the way back across the Belgian line, captured them, and then they laid down their arms. <laughs> so um, it turns out that can I just share a little, another little glimpse of this unit? It's really remarkable. Please,
2: because you're you're drawing, I think, which is such a wonderful line through history and helping us to connect the dots here. So please continue.
3: Thank you. So. I'm with uh, my my friend, Dr. Frank Viltart, and I had been photographing this underground site beneath the farm. I became friends with the the farmer and his wife, and they let me go. In fact, the, the site is now uh, used to store tractors and farm implements, and there's probably toxic chemicals stored. <laughs> and and anyway, um, uh, so um, Frank. Uh, Reaches out to me realizes that that one of the inscriptions. I didn't know what it meant. It was it said 360 said Jeff This may be an african-american unit, so it's it's right at the end of 2015. I get a meeting the first week of 2016 with dr. Rex Ellis who is the chief curator of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American history and culture now, the museum, which is now this beautiful museum, the newest Smithsonian Museum near the White House, uh, it, it would open later uh, in the year 2016. But at that time, it, they were just rushing to get the new, new museum open, but they gave me an emergency meeting. Why? Because they were working on an exhibit that actually it was my second. Uh, I would be part of the second Smithsonian exhibit that just closed in September, called We Return Fighting, the African-American Experience of World War I. So Dr. Ellis, about halfway through the meeting, there's you know, this very, uh, very dignified, formal Southern gentleman, very warm, but, but kind of, you know, real voice of authority. And, you know, he's, he's one of the leading experts on African-American history. And he said, Jeff, you have stumbled onto I Have a Dream before i have a dream mm. and then he said it again and oh my gosh you know that sounds grandiose but coming from him it's a big deal so it turns out that this was the and is the only trace of an african-american combat unit that still exists today but it wasn't just any african-american unit they were the only all african-american unit in the u.s military all volunteer all black officers all black soldiers. But what was really amazing was to learn that 102 years ago, when this unit fought so patriotically for our country, the unit had already been in existence for 49 years. 49 years. They are a bridge back to the moral moment of the Civil War and to the hopes and dreams of healing the, the scar of slavery. And they had this vision of America, and, and it was the way they saw themselves. They, they became the torchbearers for Abraham Lincoln's vision of freedom for all of us. And it's an American success story that no one knows about. That's why Dr. Ellis called it, I have a dream before I have a dream. This, they, they succeeded on every front of modern life medicine, law, banking, education, the military, sports, business, you know, on and on, men, women, and, and they, they, they did not see themselves as victims. They were visionaries, and they understood. They got America when America didn't get them, and they loved this country, even though the country, you know, they were treated at times, you know, terribly. But, but it was—so when you look at their writings, and there were several books written, and then you think of the I Have a Dream speech of Martin Luther King, and at the end of the speech he, he quotes the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty we're free at last. These patriots show us what it means to be an American. They, they had an inner freedom that no one could take away. They saw themselves as, as Americans, and they loved the country knowing it was totally imperfect. So they show us how to deal with dehumanization, which we're all dealing with, which is the, the big problem of modern life.
2: Well, and I think, too, they, they, um, they take a stand, that, that connection back to the Civil War, and obviously making a statement that they're willing to fight for their own freedom. But more importantly, in your example, Dr. Dusky, of having served in the battlefields of World War I, they also make the statement they're willing to fight for the freedom of others. I think it's interesting yeah. because these crosses that we've seen photographs of uh, that were depicted uh, annually in France during the anniversary of the end of the First World War, the crosses above ground, Uh, certainly tell us how they died but Dr. Gusky is really documenting from below ground how they lived and I suppose in some respects Dr. Gusky not just documenting their history but as you are detailing many of the carvings the messages that were left behind you're in many regards I think amplifying their stories.
3: No question And, and speaking of crosses the most recent discovery I made in this site was a, a, a passageway that had been filled with old truck tires and trash and garbage, and and the farmer had cleared it out a little bit. And in darkness, I wandered back into this, this uh, underground, uh, uh, like almost, it was a, like a tunnel. And at the end, opens up a room, and guess what's in there? A chapel. Wow. And a cross. And this is where these soldiers worshipped. When the bombs were going off, and the chaplain, who was the, he wrote the only memoir of this unit, was a Baptist preacher from Chicago. So it was remarkable.
2: And of course this remarkable story you can enjoy for yourself inside the pages of Dr. Gusky's book and I'll mention the title again The Hidden World of World War 1 you can find it online through the usual suspects amazon.com you can go also get more information at Dr. Gusky's website jeffgusky.com that's jeff Guskey, gusky g u s k y com. Dr. Gusky, we're out of time for today. I know with everything that's ramping up as the reporting is coming in from not only across the United States, but across the world, we're seeing a major uptick in COVID-19. Regretfully, many of the warnings that you shared earlier this year and throughout the summer are sadly coming to fruition, which ought to be notable for all of us to pay attention to that. And uh, we'll have to get you back on the program uh, post-haste to talk a bit more about what we can and should be doing to prepare and protect our families heading into the holiday and the cold winter season. but We wanted to spend some time today uh, kind of talking about another moment in history and learning from many of the important lessons of the events that took place on those battlefields and, most importantly, hearing of the stories of the brave men who went, who fought, and who died for the sake of the freedom of others. Dr. Jeff Gusky, again, the book. You can get it at his website or through Amazon.com. Look for the hidden world of World War One. Doctor Gusky, thank you so much for your time and we'll look forward to visiting with you again soon. Thank you, Craig. It's an honor. Six oh four from KFAX, let's get you updated on some traffic here. We're a bit late, but we get you caught up right now.